Welcome to the fourth segment of the updated episode, a conversation with Carl Watkins and a discussion about Sounds of Sunday. Let's talk about your career in radio. How did you get started in radio? Okay, radio was uh, kind of something that fascinated me as a kid. Growing up in Los Angeles, I remember at the age of 10, um, I, well, I was nine. I went into fourth grade classroom and Mr. Orwall, who was my fourth grade teacher, brought in a tape recorder. And each of us kids got to walk in front of the tape recorder and talk into the microphone while it was recording. Then after we, he, he, we sat down and he played back the recording of all us kids talking into the microphone. Uh, that just, to me, blow my mind. I had never seen anything like this where you could record your voice and play it back to you. And I really wanted to get a tape recorder. I was just fascinated with this. And so I told my mom, and she says, well save your money from your paper route. And I was getting $13 a month from Herald American paper route. I delivered on Thursday and Sunday. That's when the, the paper came out. And I had $13 a month and I saved up about 90 bucks, which I hardly saved anything at all. I always spent it as soon as I got it. And so I saved up 90, $93 or something like that. And we went to the white front department store in Los Angeles, which was a discount store kind of like a Costco in those days, I suppose. They had all kinds of nice things in there, including tape recorders. And I found the tape recorder, a voice of music tape recorder in that day. And it was priced retail for $175.50. A wholesaler was $134.75, and that's what we would pay. I didn't have that much, but my mom kicked in the rest and we bought it. December 22nd of 1955. Oh. As I, I recall the date. Came home with it, started playing on it, recording my dad and my mom and thinking it was so cool. Um, eventually, I started recording songs from the radio, put the microphone in front of the radio speaker, and I'd record my favorite songs. I thought that was a cool thing to do. And later than that, I got a, uh, a Heath Kit AM tuner, and that picks up the radio stations, and it doesn't have a speaker. It has a an output on it, like an RCA jack, and you can plug it directly into the tape recorder and record directly from the tuner onto the tape recorder. And so that's what I started doing for a long time. Did you ever listen to a headphone? Did it have a headphone jack so you could at least listen to what you were recording? The tuner did not, but I could hear it through the, the speakers of the tape recorder. Oh, okay. Once you plugged it in, you could monitor the, you, you could hear it coming through the speaker of the, of the tape recorder. Okay. So I would bring my friends over around the neighborhood. Hey, you want to hear a certain song? So I'd find it on the tape and I'd play it for them. <laughs> that was my way of beating out to buying 45 RPM records at the time, which I didn't have a record player anyway. So, <laughs> so anyway, the tape recorder fascinated me. I thought that was a cool thing to do. And eventually, uh, probably a junior in high school, I listened to the local radio station KRLA at that time, playing the hits. And I realized that I would like to be one of those guys to play the music. I'd like to be a DJ, a disc jockey. My dad thought that was a pretty lowly profession. <laughs> he wanted me to be electrical engineer, which I was interested in doing as well. But broadcast uh, working in radio stations just fascinated me. It just attracted me. It's something I always wanted to do. And so uh, when I got off my mission, in 1968, 
uh, I sought out a job as a DJ, you know, while I was going to college. So I worked in Centerville, Utah, at a little old lady station, I call it, because they played little old lady music. That's what I called it. It was old. What station was it? It was uh, KBBC at 1600. Oh, okay. That's a Spanish station now. Well, it could be. Back then it was, I didn't know. Are they even on the air? Yeah, I think so. How about that? Yeah, I had a tower right by the, the highway going by all the way up to Lagoon. Um, I, they didn't have the freeway in place at that time. I think it was just a state highway going up there. And it went right by the street that KBBC was on. And it was just a little, little small station. No big deal. 1,000 watts at 1,600 in Centerville, which uh, didn't go very far. But it was where I got $1.50 an hour, you know. As a DJ, it wasn't very much money. <laughs> so this was after your mission, I take it. Yeah, it was after my mission. Right? Okay. What year was this? 1968. Okay. I was 23 years old at that time. Okay. And then I got into the National Guard in Pocatello, Idaho, to avoid being drafted and going to Vietnam. So at that point, I worked some odd jobs in Salt Lake I worked at industrial communications in the Kennecott mine, which serviced two-way radios. So I don't know how long I kept that job at KBBC, probably not very long, because it wasn't pop music, you know, but I got some experience. And then I went to Fort Knox for uh, four months, beginning July of 68 until November of 68. And that's where I had basic training in AIT uh, for the National Guard. Later on, after I got done there, I, I moved up to Rexburg, Idaho, where I went to Rick's College. And I did the afternoon show at KIGO in St. Anthony, Idaho, which was north of Rexburg, about 13 miles, I think. So I got a little experience doing afternoons. That was awful. He listened to me and, oh, are you kidding? That kid doesn't know what he's doing. <laughs> it was terrible. Just learning how to be on the radio, you know? Yeah. And... While I was there, I didn't tell you this, but on my, on my mission, I acquired a tape recorder and I used it to record a song in my closet in Livingston, Montana. And the song I wrote before my mission was called Angel. And it was about just a love song, really. While I was in the MTC, they gave us an opportunity to perform any, you know, music or anything like that, do a performance before you go into the mission field. And so I elected to take him up on that, on that option. And I thought, well, I just can't play angel without any missionary words. There's nothing inspirational, just a, it's a love song. So I wrote two more verses to the two verse song. So it's four verses. The last two verses were about missionary work. <clears throat> so I, I performed this at the uh, MTC. While I was on my mission, I got that tape recorder and I borrowed a guitar from Sister Knight in the, in the ward. Uh, I think it was a ward in Livingston. It wasn't a branch. So I borrowed that uh, guitar and I recorded two tracks of guitar, one rhythm and one lead. And then the next morning I got up and actually sang it, uh, the one voice. And then I did a harmonizing voice on there. So that's the way it stood for a long time. It was a, a two recording song. I, I did sound on sound with this tape recorder. It goes to left to right channel back and forth. And you're able to build the, 
build several recordings like that. It's a, it's a terrible way because it doesn't. Uh, the Sounds noise like board. it was kind of the primitive way of multi-track. It was a very then. primitive way. Yeah. And it was a primitive recording studio. It was in my closet with uh, clothes hanging around to deaden out the sound and a cheap little dynamic microphone, little Colrad mic that I had. And anyway, I got that done. The mission president, Wallace E. Broberg, learned that I had a tape recorder and I was spending my time recording songs in the closet. So he, <laughs> he said, Elder Watkins, could I just take that tape recorder here so it's not such a distraction to you? Well, I complied, okay. So he takes the tape recorder and keeps it at the mission home in Billings. So I'm without it for probably maybe a year. I'm not sure. It wasn't quite a year, probably another nine months or something. The mission president comes in in July, uh, Jenkins. It changed in July of 67. I'm in Blackfoot, Idaho. I borrowed two tape recorders there to add the bass guitar part. So I've added bass now to the recording on a separate reel of tape. And on my way, being transferred to Mandan, North Dakota, uh, President Jenkins says, Elder Watkins, on your way to Mandan, could you come by the mission home in Billings? and take this tape recorder that's been sitting in the hallway? <laughs> yeah, I'd be happy to. I think you're old enough and big enough to control yourself and to use it for missionary purposes now. I says, yes, I'll be happy to do that. So I took the tape recorder back and brought it to Mandan Bismarck, and then I finished up in Bozeman, Montana in, in March of 68. So back to uh, my job at St. Anthony, Idaho at KIGO, I, I thought I'd play Angel on the air and see if anybody liked it. I got a lot of feedback. Oh, yeah, it's a good song. I really like it. I can't remember if I played all four missionary verses. I think I edited it to two verses because I thought maybe putting all this religious stuff out in the public like that might be scorned or ridiculed or something like that. So I decided to make a record of it. So I went to Los Angeles record manufacturing, and I brought in the master tape. And there was the two version uh, verse, uh, version of Angel on one side of the record and the uh, complete version of Angel with four verses on the other side, the missionary version. So I ran up and down the valley. I got the records, and I went to Provo, and I asked KLVO if they'd like to play it. And then I took it uh, to Logan, to KBLW, and I actually interviewed on the air with Darla D and she you know, asked me how I recorded the song and so forth. And those two markets, I didn't get into Salt Lake. I think that was too Gentile an area for angel to be a song, you know, it was such a primitive recording in the first place. It wasn't really a professional thing in a studio. And I went back up to Rexburg and they, we played it on the station up there a little bit. As it turned out, angel was the number one song at KOVO and Provo two weeks in a row. Wow. And they played the, the four-verse version. And the stories I'd hear were the, the girls waiting for missionaries would come together at night. It was almost a ceremony where they'd play angel and cry a little bit. And go How did it get into Provo? <laughs> I brought it to KOVO in Provo. Oh, okay. <clears throat> that, that was in Provo. And so they'd play it, you know, they'd listen to it there at BYU. Interesting. And then uh, it was number one in Logan for a week at KBLW, 1390. And KVNU played it too at 610, I believe. Interesting. So it was a, it was a hit recording. <laughs> I 
that was, that's my story. And I'm sticking to it. You know, it's funny about angel. So let me ask you this as a DJ, you know, that there is very little money to be made unless you're a morning jock or somebody like Glenn Beck. Well, and I don't know. Yeah. I'd imagine today they don't call them DJs. It's air talent. I'd imagine it's worse today because it's all voice tracking. And unless you're a contractor, you voice yeah. track for several stations. It's you're not going to get paid anything. I didn't get paid a lot of money. Uh, I so definitely... how did you, because I know eventually you got married and had children. How did you support that? Because uh, well, I hear horror I was also and... chief engineer. I did engineering for the stations. Uh-huh. Like at KEY Wine Provo, I was a chief engineer. Uh, chief engineer up in, in Idaho, where we lived for 30 years, K- KLCE had four stations up there. So they paid me a modest amount of money. Wasn't a lot of money, uh, but you know, enough with seven kids. I did a lot of dances on the side. I took the speakers out and did like school um, dances, school or dances. What? Yeah. School dance, steak dance, those kinds of things. Okay. I DJ the steak dances. And did you DJ for any weddings? Yep. Oh, yep. they'd okay. ask me to come to a wedding occasionally. Okay. <laughs> so that's kind of how I supplemented the income, but we barely made enough. Yeah. I never was wealthy. Let's put it that way. Yeah. So, so what did you, this is, I'm just adding, cause I know a little bit about radio. Did you ever have to work for free or did you ever get your paychecks late? Cause I heard that this has happened. At yeah. It did happen I... once at KEYY. Oh, uh, that was when we were first married in 1971. Uh, might've been 72. I think it was 70. Nah, let me think 71. I think I remember one time they didn't have our paychecks and we were thinking, and I was basically talking uh, to my friends working there. So let's go on strike. Let's not show up if they don't give us a paycheck, which is kind of mean because maybe you didn't yeah, have any money. The no, probably across. nothing in the bank at that time. What's that? Yeah. It definitely sends the message. Didn't happen very often uh, up in Rexburg after we got married and I worked up there for a year. He had a hard time paying me, which wasn't very much money, but he just wasn't making much money. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I've heard horror stories. I'm not kidding. I, I've heard yeah. horror stories where some radio stations, the owner gets greedy or something and no paycheck. So they all take a trip well, to the bank and get a loan or a credit union or whatever a financial institution. They the station qualifies for a loan. Oh, here's your paycheck. It's probably not a lot different than it is other businesses. Some businesses just flounder and they don't make a lot of money. And some radio stations don't make very yeah, many but you sales. You always hear about it in radio, never other, mm-hmm. never any other well, business. It's if you're close enough to radio, you know, I don't know for sure. Right. I haven't heard about it in other businesses, but I rarely heard about it in radio. Oh, oh yeah, it's yeah. Uh, yeah, it's happened. I've heard horror stories. Now, this doesn't happen at every radio station. No, but it does happen where sometimes the owner just doesn't make enough money. Yeah, has a hard yeah. time paying people, or there's greed involved, and the owner embezzles money. I've heard all kinds of horror stories. Yeah, yeah that's true. Yeah. But I I can't imagine it doesn't happen other places too. It just, uh, I think we have our ear to the so. ground for radio. We're to, our attention is focused on radio mostly. Yeah. So that might be why we notice it. Yeah. So let's uh, <clears throat> real briefly cover how you met your wife and then we'll get into the sounds of Sunday. Well, it was 19. I just got off my mission. 
um, it was 1969. I'd gotten back from Fort Knox. I'd worked at Rick's college, or uh, went to Rick's college and worked at KIGO. So we'll go back to California for the summer to be with my parents. And I says, I want to go to BYU. I want a job in radio while I'm going there. So I have a little money and plus get experience in radio. And so it's like uh, July of 1969. And Dwayne Case, the program director at KOVO, calls me, says, well, we got a job for you. You could probably work uh, whatever nights or whatever. Can't remember what they had open. So anyway, I decided to go up there in mid-July. And I go up there in mid-July and work at KOVO. And he was familiar with me a little bit because of the song Angel, but not as a DJ. And so I'm a DJ now. Well, I worked there for a month. And Dwayne calls me into his office, says, Carl, we're going to have to lay you off. And that was a nice way of saying he was firing me because and he told me, because you're not very good at reading the news. And we had at that time, we were supposed to, you know, give the headlines or read uh, maybe a five minute newscast in the hour was just formatic at that time where you had to double as a disc jockey and the newscaster. So I felt bad because I, I wasn't good at reading news. I floundered reading it. I didn't know how to pronounce words and stuff like that. And so he terminated me working at KOVO in mid-August. So I needed a job. And so I was into electronics. And so I applied for a job at Signetics, which was up at the top of the Orm Hill, uh, across the street from the University Mall at that time. And Red Lobster's there now and Kohl's, but it used to be a Signetics plant right up there. So I go up there and apply for a job as an electronics technician. And he tests me and so forth. And he hires me as a junior technician. I didn't have a degree in it, but I had a lot of practical experience and understanding of electronics. So he hires me to work there as an electronics technician. His name is Jim Smith out of uh, Sunnyvale, California. Definitely not a member of the church. I think he, um, what a way, I don't know what church he was into, but that Smith didn't correlate with Joseph Smith at all. <laughs> but anyway, he tells me, showing me around the plant, he says, you got to leave these girls alone. They'll get you in trouble. Really? And you got to realize what the population was at the Signetics plant. It was about 10 girls to one guy. The girls were really good at doing tedious work under the microscope. And when they're making integrated circuits, that's what they do. They bond a little hydrogen flame and they do a little silver solder and that type of thing uh, under a microscope because they're very small. And the guys working there, they have two capacities. Either they're the foreman over a crew of girls, and they have to have a college degree to do that, or electronics technicians. You know, they work on the equipment, and I was the latter. And so while I'm uh, – Jim Smith puts me under the supervision of another technician to show me what I'm supposed to be doing. Kent Eldridge is his name. And I asked Kent one day, I says, Kent, who's that blonde girl over there? Oh, where? Up there in the final test area. Oh, think she's cute? Yeah. Uh, why don't you ask her out? <laughs> Which was quite the opposite of what Jim Smith would have told me to do. But Ken Eldridge realized I was a return missionary, and he'd just been married a couple of years, I suppose. And yeah, okay, maybe I will ask her out. Yeah, yeah, do it. He didn't care what Jim Smith had to say. So in the final test area, I'm up there working on one of the final test stations, which looks like a desk. 
they, these girls sit at these desks up there and they conduct tests on the integrated circuits with a uh, computerized program that comes from the mainframe computer sitting in the middle of the floor. So you walk over to the mainframe and put in a program and it could be on ticker tape. Like, uh, I don't know if you remember what the computer programs were on, like in 1969, yeah, I think I, tape, I, I kind of a roll idea. of tape with little punch outs on it. And you'd feed that into the tape reader. And then it would put the program in the computer and then you'd be able to apply that test on the test stations from the mainframe computer. So Linda's up there standing right there. The blonde girl is up there standing next to the, to the uh, tape reader. And I walked up to her and she had noticed me before, but she thought I was married. I guess she could see my garment line under my shirt. So she assumed I was married like everybody else in the plant, but I was the only single guy there. And I said to her, I says, hi, why do you wear that stamp around your neck? She had a stamp and the girls carry stamps with them. And they, when they get done testing some integrated circuits, they put a slip of paper in the bag and they stamp it with their stamp or signature. That would be their signature that I certify that I have tested these. And that's what her stamp was, but she was wearing it on a string around her neck. And I says, why are you wearing that stamp around your neck? Because my foreman tells me I have to, because I keep losing it. Oh, so I thought that was quite funny. <clears throat> Here's a blonde, you know, <laughs> is she the dumb blonde? I don't know for sure. But anyway, she's kind of cute. And I said, well, would you like to go somewhere Friday? And she steps on one hip, where? And she at that time realizes I'm single. She thought I was married before. And I says, well, drive-in movie. Okay. So anyway, she takes me up on my offer. And I picked her up Friday night. We went to the drive-in movie. I think it was the Art City Drive-In in Springville. And that's where it all began, where I met Linda at the Signetics plant. Thank you for listening to the fourth segment of the updated episode, A Conversation with Carl Watkins and a Discussion About Sounds of Sunday.